Thank you, Julie. More often than I care to remember, at occasions such as this, intended to celebrate radio's creative possibilities, the standard script introduces several veteran suspects from the lunatic fringe. Often speaking with foreign accents, who proceed to elaborate the aesthetic, literary, and acoustic DNA for a teeming bestiary of vivacious airborne creatures living proof of radio's most vibrant aspirations. Then, while the air still hangs heavy with the heat of fresh possibility and the purr of sexy foreign sports cars, dead sober representatives from the corporate and editorial side enter from stage right to present their clever calculus of market share, focus groups, listener profiles, and niche demographics, during which the air is slowly sucked from the room, <laughs> reducing the assembled gang of radio makers who just a few moments before had been rubbed up into a hormonal tizzy, back to the mild depression they had long believed in their bones to be their inescapable fate. <laughs> it's like the master of ceremonies telling everyone to get up and do the Macarena, only for the band to launch into a lengthy dirge, pray for the dead, and the dead will pray. Happily, that is not the script for this occasion, as the Third Coast Festival and Conference represents, to my mind, truly the best opportunity in many years to reignite a proper cooking fire beneath an American radio scene that has been sealed in freezer bags for too long. And I am delighted to become a part of this potentially delicious thaw. I'm particularly delighted because for the past 10 years, I've been working for the most part in Europe and for the BBC and for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And so for, for Julie and Johanna to have the courage to, have, to invite me to trespass um, on my own turf, so to speak, is, is really a pleasure. And, so, and thank you to Julie and Johanna for extending the invitation. And also to continue this theme of trespassing, in a sense, I'm, I'm a trespasser within perhaps this room, but also within the medium in the sense that I tend to conceive of radio space really from a theatrical point of view, and then I borrow and inhabit and steal and pilfer from the documentary world for some of my forms. So that would be something that potentially we can talk about later. And in resonance with the season during which we celebrate the expansive territories of the dead, on this, the second day of Mexico's Dias de la Muerte, I'll begin with a kind of ghost story, the prologue to an essay for Radio France about the phantasmic side of childhood titled L'Indomptable, or The Unconquerable, in which the great doll artist Michel Nadiar, child of the Marché des Pousses, the flea markets in the north of Paris, answers the question, what is a doll, with no fewer than 22 poetic qualities, all of which might just as well be used to answer the question, what is a good radio program? So, qu'est-ce que c'est une poupée 
and you don't need to speak a single word of French to get the drift. And please, if we can lower the lights as well. Qu'est-ce que c'est qu'une poupée? Qu'est-ce que c'est qu'une poupée? C'est quelque chose d'étrange. C'est quelque chose dans l'ombre. C'est quelque chose de la terre. C'est quelque chose de l'origine. C'est quelque chose de magique. C'est quelque chose de paternel. C'est quelque chose d'interdit. C'est quelque chose de Dieu. C'est quelque chose de lointain. C'est quelque chose sans yeux. C'est quelque chose d'animal. C'est quelque chose d'oiseau, c'est quelque chose de silencieux, c'est quelque chose d'éternel, c'est quelque chose de, de boue, c'est quelque chose de caillou, quelque chose de végétal, quelque chose de l'enfance, quelque chose de cruel quelque chose de de joie quelque chose de cri quelque chose de muet voilà to L'Andomptable, or The Unconquerable, something from the shadows, something forbidden, something from far away, something blind, something bird-like, something eternal. Like Nadyar's uncanny world of poupée fantastique, radio is also a ghost medium, always on the fade, always slipping away, at a speed faster than fingers can twitch or ears can adjust, Rags of words and sound suspended in electromagnetic limbo. Who is speaking? Who is listening? No one, everyone, both. Like Nadjar's dolls, Dear Mother Radio was born with a severe case of multiple personality disorder. And the problem is every voice is always on, in the air all the time, from vegetative drone tones to the voice of God. The radio listener, in all her protean moods, is equally as slippery, equally as unstable, equally as ghosted, in the bath or in a doctor's waiting room, in the car, on the move, somewhere else, probably thinking about something or somebody else, some other place, some other voice, not us. So on both sides of the transmission, the listening situation is viscous, fluid, indefinite, only the potential for a crossing, no promises. The key to making engaging radio programs, for me, 
is in understanding and embracing the creative possibilities of this fundamental communicative uncertainty, not in trying to erase it or pretend that all is perpetually in order, whether through compulsive hand-holding or the urge to spoon-feed and infantilize. Too much of that, and the relationship dries out, withers, and dies. It's easy, but it won't last. Mediocrity only feels cozy for so long. Far better to jump headlong into the sublime carnival of the limbo zone and permit ourselves to become bewitched, bothered, and bewildered by a shipwreck off the coast of Nantucket, by Ophelia floating in a vat, by Che Guevara on the autopsy table, or by Casanova in his leather carnival mask. Alec Folger, right, uh, this is his, from his journal, 1771, is a winter gale. Uh, a most terrible gale of wind with abundance of snow. Began to snow soon after 12, and by sunset was a hard storm, and lasted till the afternoon of the next day when it moderated. Effects. A vessel cast away on the east end of Nantucket, of which the master and mate, both dead and the people that survived, suffered great hardships. A great deal of shipwreck between here and New York, wherein great numbers of people endured a world of misery and distress. And then he also writes, I am at this time in my chamber in pretty good health. Where I shall be tomorrow at this time, alas, who can tell? <laughs> well, yes. Um, it's almost as if I'm trying to be um, a sort of living tableau most of the time. Um, I turn myself into just another art object in the room. And also, I am very interested in people not quite knowing. I like the sort of near invisible and the sort of not quite knowing if somebody's dead or alive or real or, or a, a mannequin. I like to make people... I, f I, like, I like to think that they spend more time looking at something which they need to work out rather than just get the instant sort of one-liner and leave. I like to have them wondering what about what they're looking at. And I think that the, it's kind of the sleeping beauty thing that sort of runs through my work, that as if I've been sleeping for hundreds of years, therefore does that make me dead? I really don't know. I'm, um, in a way, I think it's consumption, you know, it's consumption in the same way that... Um, you know, Mexican peasants uh, make uh, sugar uh, skulls in order to uh, understand the meaning of death and they eat them for the day of the dead. You know, it seems to me that we have made a sugar skull out of uh, Guevara, out of Evita, and that we eat them like candy. You know, it's... Uh, um, but... Uh, I think John Berger, when John Berger wrote the famous article that compares his photograph to the anatomy lesson and the uh, Mantegna's Dead Christ, uh, he uh, speaks of something very simple and yet very puzzling. He says, it seems that Guevara stood for the possibilities of one individual and that 
the end of Gemara is almost the end of the possibilities of one individual. And I'm not exactly sure of what that means. I, I think that he, he really accepted everything which was happening. And even if the death, even he, he took risks while traveling with the venereal, venereal disease, he never tried to escape or have a safe life. So for him, uh, facing death was a way to refuse it, but not not escaping from from death. I think it was a more like primitive view of life that death and life are mixed and you cannot exclude one without uh, refusing the other one. And in, in Casanova there is no transitions, there is no gradations. It, it just, he says it, it jumps from unhappiness to happiness. There is something almost brutal in it. He made the decision. Job. Yeah. Mm. The same way a carnival starts one day, you just jump into it. One day you just jump into it. The closing minutes from very freely associative essay, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, for um, the listening room, very famous, uh, extraordinary oasis of radiophonic um, adventure in the, at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Four very different conversations that are then arranged into kind of rotating quatrains, uh, inviting the listener to, to really navigate by a kind of dead reckoning, by their own wits, rather than holding their hand to try to get across the turbulent waters. And my, 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 interview, my, my subjects were the maritime historian uh, Nathaniel Philbrick on death in the ocean, and this was before he won the National Book Award for um, Heart of the Sea. And uh, uh, London performance artist Michelle Griff Griffiths on why she submerged herself in a water tank for two weeks. That piqued my curiosity. Argentinian filmmaker Leandro Katz on the iconography of Che Guevara and French literary historian Chantal Thomas on the life philosophy of Casanova. The essay also became inevitably, I mean, despite all my best efforts, so much of my work becomes a meditative reflection or some sort of philosophical search about the nature of radio itself. And radio journeys certainly some of mine, often end in shipwreck, um, are airwaves offering an electronic mirror for the submerged graveyard of the Atlantic. And radio, like a human body floating in a vat, is nebulous, which is the very opposite of opaque. For the longer you look at a nebula, the more you see. It is all a matter of allowing scant light to work on cognition, a process that will never happen over the duration of a single sound bite. 
And radio is a medium where I believe the possibilities of one individual, one individual, can still make a difference against the suffocating tidal waves of the mainstream media. And finally, like Casanova, radio does have the power to seduce in a way that entangles the erotic with the dangerous, like a headlong jump into a carnival, even if you end up with your head in the dirt, surrounded by hungry stink bugs. This is from a piece called The Thing About Bugs. To exterminate uh, for the last two weeks. Yeah, uh, different exterminators all the time because... Uh, and I don't, nothing like I don't... Well, I'll tell you what, you get some insect in a bottle there and bring it up to this office and we'll identify them for it. But you see, I don't have any bugs. Well, then I can't help you. No, but I want you to come and exterminate my house even though I don't have any bugs. No, we don't do that.
exterminate everyone who does not meet the universal standard. You know what I mean. Just do it now. It's only going to get worse. The character known as... Uh, The very fun-loving uh, character known as the exterminating angel from The Thing About Bugs, which was a meditation on dirt, hygiene, and death in an age of digital scrubbing and ethnic cleansing. Are they connected? I don't know. But I suspect that the exterminating angel would have a ready response. I do know that radio thrives on the illusion of co-presence, the illusion that every call will somehow, at some point, find a response and that the act of conjuring is most successful when least explained, even if you don't have any bugs. The broadcast journalist clings to notions that descend, for the most part, from the newspaper of record. Authenticity, objectivity, balance, who, what, when, where. But the radio illusionist plays or ought to play by different rules, the goal is not to set the record straight, because I believe there are much better media for that, but rather to entertain in the root sense of entretenir, to hold or keep among, ears held through our hypnotic conjuring of associations, memories, inspirations, and ideas, ears held through internally motivated style, style from the inside out, style at the service of the listening relationship, in all its uncertainties, and by our living, breathing presence. The pleasure of Nedyar's dolls, magic tricks, true bugs, creative radio casts, vibrates in the suspension of the immediate connection between event and explanation, relying more on the entanglement of curious associations, the mysterious cognitive resonance later, much later, lying in bed, and you think, aha, that's how it's done, that's what it means. Radio's most indispensable ambition to feed the desire to wonder, the eruption of some surprising feeling or thought, what was that? Here at the uh, Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, we're always looking for ways to integrate creative sound into the rhythms of everyday life. So, for example, this summer, we have been developing a technique which permits us to freeze individual sounds, in this case, sounds from brass instruments, into ice cubes. Transforming uh, that familiar icon of the American kitchen, the ice tray, into a recording device. In theory, one could continue to add ice cubes instruments uh, 
but in this case, we're presenting a brass choir of six voices. moments of gentle harmony in an increasingly cacophonous world. From the Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, until next time, this is Gregory Whitehead. Classic musical tale on the second half hour of All Things Considered. Um, ICE Music from the Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, the acronym for which is LIAR. Uh, and uh, thank you. Good fun to do these periodic reports. And after that particular one aired on All Things Considered, uh, I was swamped by inquiries about the status of my patent. And the market cap of my humble laboratory. Japanese television was particularly persistent. It would appear that the dream of freezing sound that goes back to at least, at least to Rabelais dies hard. Talk radio. A number of years ago, I began to listen seriously to commercial talk radio in all of its many variations, and also some of public broadcasting's talk radio, at the more commercial end of it, from the virtuoso ventriloquisms of Phil Hendry to the neo-adolescent babblings of Howard Stern and the slyly irrelevant Bastin banter of Click and Clack. Now, obviously, from the high cultural perspective of, say, the classical European feature, most American talk radio would be considered beneath contempt the veritable sewers of the airwaves, and so that may be. But a mud trench supports more life than a glass house. And so for many years now, I've been plotting fresh ways to dig myself into the muck and see what comes out in the wash, guided by the spirit of the trickster coyote, who understands better than anyone else that even the freshly oxygenated blood that fuels the brain gets its kick from the belly up. Hi. I'm Amelia Mangan. I'm eight years old, and here's my screen. <coughs> Bye. Hello, Mr. Whitehead. It's approximately 4 p.m. Saturday afternoon, October the 19th. No two people cry the same way. I wonder whether this could apply to screams as well. You should know by now. I may do some research on that. Meanwhile, to add to your scre screamscape,
Absolutely. Well, I found a new extension line here in the uh, ABC, a new service that's uh, provided at the moment. 1312, 1312, that's the extension. Going through. You know, you know, what, they, you know what they like, these ABC phones. They're um, absolutely appalling. I'm getting the... Um, getting the control lines through here on the uh, intercom. Dave, could you turn the intercom off? That's it. Just bear with us. Okay, well, we won't have the uh, phone going into the screen room just yet. But anyway, I can tell you it is a new service here at the ABC. Your eight cents a day gives you a chance of not only screaming down the telephone, and people are actually uh, doing it, as you can hear. Hello. My name is Kevin O'Connor. I live in Goulburn. Here is my special end of a hard day in year six scream. Thank you. Is that all? Okay. They're very varied, infinitely varied screams, aren't they? Absolutely. And they seem to take on a life of their own. You start off screaming at one point and you'll end up at another. Yeah, and at the Institute we're fond of saying that, uh, that everyone screams, but everyone screams alone. Oh, that's, that's, uh, yes, I wish I'd had that in my introduction. That's, that's a wonderful line. Sounds a bit like an S and M bondage. Well, I know. And, uh, yeah, I, and screams happen at this borderline of pleasure mm. and pain, and oh, yes. and we do encourage people to uh, invite their friends or into the scream room or set up whatever situation they want, which will help them to access their innermost uh, scream. Are these screams confidential? We're not going to uh, absolutely. Well, there's no way since it's strictly a radio project. There's no way to match screams with bodies. Uh, once once we have the screams, only the screams remain. Yeah. And what are you going to do with them? In the broadcast this morning, October 17th, the interviewer remarked that some of your samples sounded like an SMC. Having some experience in that area, I'd like to leave some ideas and examples of screams from, as you said, the border of pain and pleasure. Some submissives, or masochists if you prefer, like to take as much corporal punishment as possible in silence. But to many of us, we enjoy it more if we allow ourselves to vocalise and not hold back. Screams and related yells, cries and gasps are enjoyable, liberating, even cathartic to the one lucky enough to suffer. I just love the way he says, for the one lucky enough to suffer. Um, I mean, the best way, of course, to get permission is to open up those phone lines. The scream piece, Pressures of the Unspeakable, first produced for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in 1992, and the concept was simple. I presented myself with a business card and official letterhead in hand as Dr. Gregory Whitehead, director of the International Institute for Screamscape Studies, visiting Australia to produce the definitive study of the Australian scream. Through radio and television talk show appearances and newspaper interviews, Dr. Whitehead was able to generate a good deal of publicity, which in turn generated thousands of scream donations into the archive which in turn generated, we had a scream bank, which in turn generated a 40-minute broadcast montage, a feature that was really nothing more than a loose documentation 
of a hybrid circuitry of performance, stories, confessions, and a vast archive of raw screams. Since that first program, the concept has been repeated in over 20 other cities, from Osaka to Montreal, Los Angeles to Copenhagen, with varying degrees of direct involvement from me and produced mostly on the tiny budgets that have become my putative specialty. These live-to-air screamscapes, unedited, relying for the most part on the pure beauty of interference and feedback, the weird, wired heart of talk radio. I confess, confess to harboring a certain perverse fascination for the figure of the shock jock, the bottom of the media feed chain, and therefore the most highly paid. The very antithesis of the enlightened, highbrow radio maker the moral documentarian. The successful shock jock is a relentlessly abusive persona whose combination of manic charm and bottomless cynicism seems to strike at the very heart of contemporary America or the conspicuous lack thereof. Last year, the centennial for Marconi's famously twitching letter S, 1902, dot, 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 the first transatlantic wireless transmission, coincided with the 150th birthday of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. The coincidence is particularly apt, as I have long thought of Captain Ahab as America's first and prototypical shock jock. Ahab, struck by lightning, and then he never stops talking, as he berates, cajoles, and ridicules his doomed crew, rants that are supported nocturnally by the tapping of his wooden leg against the quarterboards of the Pequod, an acoustic encryption that perhaps only Queequeg understands. Queequeg, whose entire body is a carved cosmogony for his native land, and whose coffin is therefore a kind of book box, a book box that in turn soon becomes a lifeboat for Ishmael, the lone survivor of Ahab's last broadcast, or the white whale. American heavy. On a hot and heavy night in the summer, you're here with Jack French, and the number here to call is 1-800-BAD-JACK. And here we get to talk about all the things you can't talk about with anybody else. Oh, man, is it as hot and sticky where you are as it is in here with me. Oh, yeah, I just took my own temperature. No, I'm not going to tell you where I stuck the thermometer, you... Well, it, re it reads 102.5 FM, and that's just my body heat. Ooh, look at that. You must be wired up good tonight. The phone banks look like the runway lights at LAX, and I barely started to breathe. But hang on, hang on tonight. Tonight we got a very big fish to fry. I'm in a Moby Dick kind of mood. And that means I fully intend to swing my primo harpoon, so crank up your speed dollars and get ready to chase a little tail that is the biggest whale of them all, because our theme tonight is Fun Things We Like to Talk About With God. You know, ladies and gentlemen, a recent scientific study reports that 87% of all Americans carry on a daily personal conversation with God. 87% daily with God. God, I don't have a daily conversation with my wife, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. How you doing tonight? Now, that's a duty load of people. 
having a duty load of heavy conversations with the big one. And I want, do you hear me? I want, and you know, I always get what I want. What I want is to know, what are you talking about? Okay, first caller. Give me your first name and hometown, and you're on the air. My name is Sally Sue, and I'm from Sioux City, Iowa. Sally Sue from Sioux City, that's sweet. Only in America. City Sue from Sally City, do you not or do not have a daily chit-chat with God? Well, of course I do. We do it all day long. Oh, baby, and what do you two talk about there, Sally Sue? Whatever is going on, like if I'm getting dressed, I might say, Now, what about this? Does this go? You know, whatever. Sally Sue, that's good. That is, that is too good. So, do you mind if we get a little upfront and personal here? Well, heck, Jack, we're already talking about him. You know, like God. Yeah, well, heck, Sally Sue. Since you just told me that you have God as a sort of in-house wardrobe consultant, I gotta ask you. Salasil. Salasil. What are you wearing right now? Salasil, give it to me. It's out here, Salasil, but it's not out enough, so... Salasil, would you please tell me, what did God tell you to wear today? In the beginning, in the beginning was the... Councillor Avocado, I presume your client has been prepared? Yes, Your Honor. We're ready to roll. Very well, then. Mr. French, what is your profession? Entertainer. Once again, please. Entertainer. I'm an entertainer. An entertainer. Mm -hmm. I see. And what exactly does that mean to you, Mr. French? Laugh. I make people laugh. Make people laugh? Hmm. And is it a happy laugh? Happy laugh? <laughs> happy laugh? When you make people laugh, Mr. French, is it a laughter that lightens the heart? American. Heavy. Heavy. So the laughter is unhappy. Your Honor, uh, might I tender an objection? Keep still, Counselor. If you are unable to feed your plant his lines, I have no choice but to do so myself. Mr. French, what do you make people laugh about when you make people laugh? Soup. All crazy soup. Do you mean to say giving voice to the absurd? Giving head to the herd. I beg your pardon? I believe my client is referencing the role of the imagination in the dissemination of mass media. Thank you, Counselor. But I'm neither so old nor so dim as you apparently think. No, Your Honor. Not that dim. Thank you, Mr. French. Okay. <laughs> Not that dim. And then she came back. It was an improvised line, and it was just so perfect. Thank you, Mr. French. I couldn't resist playing this little montage from American Heavy, 
which was a BBC Radio 4 Friday play, of which, I mean, that's sort of my, my main gig, I suppose, at this point, in which the world-famous shock jock Jack French finds himself in a bog named The Big Sloppy and tries unsuccessfully to talk himself out. The shock jock convenes community and then puts it to waste, and in doing so replicates in daily, hourly episodes in a thousand segmented markets the fallen status of democracy in the time zone of the new millennium. A boundlessly flabby democracy that perhaps finds its most perfect expression under the yellow neon star of Andy Warhol in the format of the celebrity talk show. And so for the last five years, I've been floating in and out of my own celebrity talk show, initially for BBC Radio 4, but now for all comers, an open-ended series called Talk to Sleep, in which I play the roles of host, guest, and band, staging imaginary conversations with real or possible people, celebrities of the present or imminent future, such as this one with wannabe performance artist Michael Monaghan, who endeavors to eat his way to the top of the art world by ingesting three canonical texts, the Oxford Universal Dictionary, Gray's Anatomy, and the King James Bible, or as he puts it, one for the mind, one for the body, and one for the soul. So uh, how have the reviews been when you've done it in galleries? Uh, they've been, it's been total riot. I, it's some, one of my friends says, I've got to save all the art magazine clippings, and then as a sequel, I could just eat them. But there are, I don't understand some of it. I mean, one dude calls me, quote, a brilliant, almost hallucinatory embodiment of the corporeal aesthetic translucently metaphysical, inflamed by the acid juices of neo-Deleusian thought. I still haven't found anybody who can tell me what neo-Deleusian means. Oh, oh, I'm lost on that one. Uh, but has anyone objected that eating the Bible is, is somehow sacrilegious? I've gotten some negative feedback on that, and the gallery in Cleveland was picketed by a bunch of Mormons, but that's not how I see it at all, at all. I mean, it's the Word of God. It's in my body. I'm, I am taking it into my body. And, I mean, it's all that stuff about the body being the temple of the soul, and I, I take that as word, mega big time, I'm mega. Do you ever worry about uh, toxins in the temple? Uh, from the from the ink, not, not really. And the Bible I'm eating uses soy ink. I'm not sure about the others, but so far I haven't felt any any side effects or anything. I mean, I drink maybe five to seven big bottles of water every day, and that that just flushes everything out. Can you uh, describe your actual eating process? Sure. It's about time for a little snack anyway. Let's see here in the Oxford Universal. I am up to page 1,335. It goes from none, N-O-N-E, to noose, N-O-O-S-E. It's got some words like none, non-ego, non-essential, non-such, non-intercourse, uh, non-natural, 
Nani Nani, Nani Nani, non performance, non plus, non sense, nonsense, nonsensical, non sequitur, noodle, nook. It's one I've never seen before. Noology, the science of the understanding. It's from Greek. So I just tear it out and then tear the page lengthwise into more manageable pieces. I'll roll them up, you know, into almost like uh, a chaw of tobacco and then just start to chew. The key is water, lots of water because the paper's constantly mopping out your mouth. Mind, body, and soul. And yes, I did eat several pages of the OED, so. It's a bit of a BBC legend that, you know, so the whitehead's down in the basement eating the book. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, last spring, there's a great show nowadays um, happening on, on Radio 3, which is sort of, a, you know, it was uncharted waters for me. I mean, there's Radio 4, there's Radio 3. It's very, it took me a long time to even figure out what, what each domain was. But there's a great show on Radio 3 now called The Verb, which is essentially a literary show, but they wanted to do sort of more kind of quirky radiophonic stuff as well. So they asked me if I'd be interested in doing a regular sort of cartoon um, and, the cart- and the idea of a radio cartoon was so fascinating because cartoon, of course, comes from carta, which was the, the kind of thick cardstock that was used for, for sketching out uh, essentially fashion accessories. <clears throat> um, but I also thought, well, carta may be also in the sense of a carta postale. So I thought, well, my radio cartoons would, will deal with both letters and with fashion, and I will embrace both origins of this. Uh, lingual acrobatics and plain old buzzwords. Now, the great Viennese satirist and word freak named Karl Krauss, all but obliterated from literary history and wrongly so, he once said that some words forbid understanding, and the best one can do is listen to them patiently and wait for them to tell their own stories. And so it was with my own stupid word trick number 342, a story that unfolds one letter at a time around the lethal loaded couplet evil axis with its odd assortment of vowels and consonants, I noticed that if you just rotated one letter at a time, you got this lovely evil axis, vila shiche, ilax isev, lax isevi, axis evil, shiche vila, isev ilax, sevi laxi, evil axis, and devised the cartoon around that. Fun things to do with silly words, number 342, evil axis. Rotate the lead E to the rear end, and we discover the Greco-Romanian film star, Vila Shishe. Rotate the V, and we surprise the beautiful Vila in a highly compromising position with the Russian mafioso, Ilax. Isev. 
rotate the eye back to the end, and the two lovebirds are dining on delicate portions of the curried mousse known as Naxisevi in the company of Rotate the L, famed international financier Axis E. Lil. They promptly decide to rotate the A and collectively purchase the legendary Shishe Villa in the wilds of the rotated X, Isav Ilax, where they soon give birth to twins named Sevi and Laxi, who return the S to the tail, thereby restoring evil axis. about these cartoons is that it gives me every excuse to sing on air, which is, uh, which is um, always great fun. Well, so more recently, uh, one of my editors proposed that I cook up one of these cartoons having to do with Martha Stewart, who the Brits see as a somewhat elderly version of Fergie. <laughs> upper, uh, these upper crust aspirations combined with grubby salesmanship. Now, at first, I have to say I was reluctant, as it seemed to me that there were already several rugby teams piling on top of poor old Martha. And for that reason, I wondered, and for, the, and for what reason, I wondered, for in the context of stock, of stock market pigdom, relative to the likes of Dennis Kozlowski and Jack Welch, her snuffling at the trough had actually exhibited a fairly tasteful amount of restraint. <laughs> but on refre- reflection, I realized that what is really deeply significant about Martha Stewart, and therefore uh, eminently cartoon-worthy, is her complete willingness to embrace the disappearance of any kind of boundary between personhood and the corporation. Martha Stewart, omni-media, the fully-branded media persona. Such unbridled chutzpah is always deserving of a skewer or two or three So I began to write sentences whose words followed the sequence M-A-R-T-H-A, as if Martha was truly a corporate acronym, the corporation M-A-R-T-H-A. And I'd write sentences based on that sequence and then arrange them into what I thought of as an acoustic pin-up calendar for Martha's Year in Hell, The Meaning of Martha, 2002, and I can't resist doing this one live to air. January. My ambition requires tidy household accoutrement. February. Material aches, royal trappings, haughty aspirations. March. Meaningless arty renovations titillate highbrow adults. April. Moneyed attitudes. Ruffled, truffled, honeyed affluence. 
May. Mildew around refrigerator triggers hysterical aggression. June. Management agrees. Raise the happiness allowance. July. Mendacious assumptions reach terrifically high altitude. August. Muffed arithmetic requires trembling hired accountant. September. Many Americans reject trading her assets. October. Marketplace abyss restrains tremendously hoggish appetites. November. Mushrooms, artichokes, roast turkey, hot anchovies. December. Meticulous adjudication renders tender hindquarters alarmed. Happy New Year, to you. Happy New Year, Good fun to do. I have one more which we can do after questions, but but now I want to get back perhaps to the to the darker side of the radio story, which you know, frankly is on my mind a lot as radio is so much implicated in so many of the catastrophes that continue to unfold around the world. So I do as much as I try to cling to the, the levitation of radio. There's a certain crushing side to the history of the medium that I think we all have to be aware of. And so my final story begins in the early days of the human imagination, back when Okeanos and Tetis gave birth to a daughter, Metis, whose intelligence was such that she alone could grasp the rhythm and pattern of the ever-changing waves. Able to gauge the intricate interplay of wind, tide, and wave, Metis reigned as the natural spirit of divination and navigation. Her mobility of thought so impressed the omnipotent Zeus that he did what Zeus did best. He raped her. Then, appetite not satisfied, he proceeded to eat the cunning Metis, doomed to live out her immortal existence from inside the flux and flotus of Zeus's belly. But though Zeus may have a woman in his belly, he does not have the belly of a woman. Thus was born Pallas Athena, bursting from his head, Athena in full armor, eyes blazing, the living incarnation of a blooded thought. Shifting like winds or tides, Athena becomes the master of camouflage and transmutation, changing gender and even species in accordance with ever-shifting circumstance. 
the wily Odysseus knew her as a sea crow. Pallas Athena, goddess of wisdom and war, goddess as well, in my belief, of old mother radio. Radio born from maritime distress, riddled by catastrophe and salvation, instrument of conquest and illumination, source of immense profit, propaganda, and pleasure, medium of polyphony and crushing monotones, a beautiful, crafty, terrifying medium with both violence and salvation organically grafted into her heart. Over the past year, we've seen the dark fathoms of radio in all their horror, wireless smart bombs and electromagnetic orgies of hatred and conspiracy. I call this radio thanatos, stronger than ever. Only radio eros can break the lethal spell. Radio eros, the home turf for the people assembled here at the Third Coast, creative radio, radio makers charged with the task of coaxing, seducing, luring, seizing out of the dark a moment of thought, a charge, a scream, a laugh, an objection, or connection, putting things back together again, where a moment before there had been only solitude, silence, and rupture. Radio eros. Sound buoys marking out the deadly rocks and riptides. Floating signs that somebody wants us to get home safely in one piece, and that somebody still believes, against all odds, that communication may actually conjure and sustain human community. Here comes everybody, and feel free to join me as we... Here comes everybody. Communication is community. Communication is community. The technology of transmission. The technology of transmission. Is the promise of one world. The promise of one world. Made whole. Made whole. Brought together. Brought together. All languages. All languages. All races. All races. All cultures. All cultures. I dream of a time. I dream of a time. When everybody on the planet lives. When everybody on the planet lives. Finnegan's wake. Finnegan's wake. Here comes everybody. 
Time, but I'm I'm happy to to take to just talk or um, and I do have one more cartoon that I want to do before we split for lunch. So now Jay may de- Jay may deny responsibility, but actually the first official audio where I had been fooling around with sound before I met him, but I actually took an audio workshop with this fellow, and he told me about this funny place, at least back at the time it was a funny place, called National Public Radio. So. <laughs> hello, hello. Yeah, that was 20 years ago. We've been talking for a long time about, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to hear your work, and, and also to hear the way it's changing. That's what I want to ask you about. Uh, your early work <clears throat> was, seems to me, more fragmented, it contained more damage, the puzzles were deeper, you didn't give us any clues, Uh, you were a little bit aggressively non-narrative, I mean we used to talk about that, and I want to talk about, is that changing, is is the body and the voice coming together, you seem so much more there, the work seems more generous, and it seems also as if story has a very different place in it than, than your early work used to, it was challenging work, that early stuff, and a lot of people were willing to do the work, but not maybe the the American listener. Now it seems like there's more there for them, and and this also ties to the idea of you as a prophet without honor. I mean, that you're in Germany, and you're in Sweden, and Holland, and you're in uh, Australia, and you're in England, but not very much here. But I sort of think maybe the time time is coming that you'll be back. Uh, you, you can talk to my agent. <laughs> no, Jay, you're right. I mean, uh, but when you're 22, uh, you know, you, you expect that everyone's going to come to your puzzle. And, um, you know, you, you also expect that what you're doing is completely lucid, as I was convinced at the time. And, you know, I hear back. I mean, I think there are still moments of lucidity, but you're, you're right. It was very, I mean, I was interested at the time also in going against what I saw as the crushing tidal wave of American media, which is so much towards this kind of, infantile blather. So I was really determined to make work for thoughtful adults who were willing to do a little bit of work. Um, so, but I mean, I, I definitely uh, loosened my style. I think part of that just comes with, with feeling more comfortable with, I mean, I've, I've added tools. I've, you know, I write for live theater, which changes, believe me, it changes your your style in a very, very uh, positive way, I think. I mean, some of the best workshops that I do for radio people are really voice workshops that come from theater. And that, adding that whole dimension to my life and to my work, um, and just, you know, collaborating more and, and inviting. I mean, a lot of those pieces, there were all sorts of other people involved, and being open to that is... Uh, is a key. I mean, radio can be very hermetic. I mean, it's and, and I think that there's something. One of the most moving pieces in I think all of radio history, 
and Kay Mortley certainly knows this one. It's by Antonin Artaud, pour en finir avec le jugement de Dieu, to have done with the judgment of God. It's essentially a kind of hermetic, somewhat crazed. I mean, he was dying. He was being eaten alive by his uh, by rectal cancer and was in a institu- you know, psychiatric institution and, and did this incredible radio monologue that was so radical that it was not aired, I think, Kay, until when? The 60s sometime. 60s. Um, so I think that there is a side of radio that invites that kind of almost a hermetic. Um, and I think that, 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 that we should every now and then, everyone should do their hermetic piece, uh, perhaps. Or their, that's because I think radio is about ciphers. I mean, the, the radio is born out of encryption. It's out of code. So I think that coded nature is there. But then, you know, to add the, the it's so important, uh, obviously, to balance that with the human side. I mean, there are, there are still people that don't know what the hell I'm up to. Um, and, you know, but I try, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I can only go so far, I guess, is, is to try to negotiate. I mean, again, I said the relationship to a listener is a negotiation. It's not fixed. And I think what's happened to me over 20 years, hard to believe, uh, but that's what it is, is that I've learned about how to, how to give more and how that the nature of that of that uh, relationship is very fluid and flexible and beautiful. And if you can get that happening, if you can get that that little bit of, you know, if you can get that first laugh usually, I mean, then you have that listener there, wow, you know, it's just incredible what can happen from there. And to do that takes generosity. I think this. Oh, sorry. Susan, um, it almost embarrasses me to ask such a technical question because your work is it functions on so many levels, but it's, it's those under levels that I'm most interested in, in, in the nature of how you compose your work, how you choose its rhythm tracks, how you choose all those subtle sounds that you work in. I mean, do you, do you write it first and then you go searching for ways to embellish it? Well, I do it all myself. So, I mean, I, you know, that's that, that the whole, <laughs> the Che Guevara fantasy of, you know, the, the radio is a medium where you can do I mean, I could bring together my, I mean, my, my two great passions of, of music and literature. So, um, I mean, I, being, having my, 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 my own keyboard and being able to fake my way around a lot of musical instruments. I mean, I, I pull out the old tenor saxophone on some tracks and I have all my kids, you know, I have their little toy accordions and I use it all. I mean, I, and I just do it myself. And I, I often a, a, a text, the Martha piece, I did the, the rhythm track first because I knew I wanted a kind of calendar. So that did first and then I, and then I just looped it and just let it play and play while I wrote the, while I wrote the, the Martha sentences. So I think there has to be that, you know, so often, particularly I mean, in certain, you know, some, sometimes I object to workshops, production workshops that really always begin with the story idea and not with some random bit of, you know, sound or ambience. Sometimes that's where the magic is. That is the heart of the piece. So, Larry the J. Yeah, <laughs> still here after all these years. Um, I was really blown away by this, and I, I have, I'm ashamed to admit that in all the years I've known you, I've never heard your work, and this is wonderful stuff. But uh, to a couple of and Johanna, I'm going to ask a question. Um, but why? Whoever made up that rule that when you're in a Q and A, you have to ask a question. But I'd like to meet the man and shoot him. But two, several, several things. One, it's wonderful to hear an unabashed intellectual, a literate man with a sense of humor doing radio because 
Public radio was started by intellectuals like Bill Seemering, and it's been swamped and taken over by journalists who purvey facts. And there's very little play, fantasy, uh, imaginative stuff on all things considered anymore. It's Senator so-and-so supports this bill and blah, blah, blah. Uh, do, you, do you work much in this country? And you told me privately in the hall that you work in England because you can't make a living as an American independent producer, and that's another concern I have. But uh, when's the last time you had a piece on ATC? And I have another question. Well, I did this short little my 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 um, my uh, um, reports from Liar from the Laboratory for Innovation. Right. Those those were ATC. And I, How long I, ago? I don't think I'm. I think the last one was a couple of years ago. Right. Um, I don't think that I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a a, a, a a complete secret. I mean, people know that I'm out there. It's just that, frankly, I'm not by nature. I'm not somebody who's going to spend a large part of my life swimming upstream. I mean, I. You know, yeah. the, I mean, over in Europe, frankly, I can I can I can do projects in I can do four or four or five projects in one year. What I'd have to be here, you know, kicking and screaming and saying me 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 for like 20 years before anybody would even. You know, so it's it's a whole you're, other. You're lucky that old-fashioned intellectual radio and features and all of that still exist in somewhat attenuated form in Germany and England yeah. and Australia. And you're lucky you have a place to work. The other question I have is. Have you been influenced by the work of Joe Frank, who is uh, sadly not on the radio anymore? Oh, yeah. Gene, Joe Frank, Gene Shepard, Joan Frank. I mean, we do have an incredible history in this, in this country, which has been, I mean, who, how many people, for example, have ever heard anything by Gene Shepard? Oh, good. Oh, gosh, that's great. Okay, I'm glad there are so many hands because, you know, somebody who's been sort of erased culturally, and it's, uh, it's fabulous work. He was replaced by a gardening show on WOR. Joe Frank, Joe Frank um, obviously I was aware of Joe Frank's work, listened to it quite a bit. And Phil Hendry, somebody else who I think is, um, is doing amazing work. Uh, I mean, it's not my aesthetic. I mean, his, his, the, the content is not. I don't know if anybody knows Phil Hendry, but he does a, a, basically a fake talk show where he pretends to be, he's the host, but he also is all the guests calling in. And, and it's quite incredible. I mean, it's just just from a purely, just in my when I wear my hat as a theater director, and to come across somebody who can do those voices at such, and he's doing it all live to wear. It's really quite incredible. Where, where can you hear him? He's nationally syndicated. I mean, really? the guy. I mean, commercial the, radio. Commercial radio. Wow. And I, I need to correct a misstatement I made. I misspoke myself, as Richard Nixon used to say. Uh, Joe Frank is on selected stations, KPFA, and also on WNYC AM at 11 p.m. on uh, Sunday night, I think. And uh, so he, he has thousands of hours of archives which are available to anyone who wants to play them. And uh, um, I hope that all of you get a chance to hear Joe Frank because he is the most imaginative darkest, funniest person I've ever heard on the radio. I guess I could describe him in one sentence, that if Franz Kafka were a stand-up comedian, he'd be Joe Frank. Do you want to wind up? I will be around. Oh, here, okay. Yes. Is time for one more question? Yes. Okay. Um, whoops. Uh, I, I sort of try to imagine uh, putting together a radio piece as 
an orchestration. It's a, it's, it's a symphony of music elements and voice and text um, and imagination, picture imagination. And what the other questioner asked about um, how you, your process works uh, sort of made me think about uh, this a little bit. And I was wondering, have you always been able, like, it's, I guess, a two-part question. When you lay down the, the, the rhythm track for the Martha piece, for instance, can you then sort of step outside of the self that made that and listen to it as you know, something that you respond to to make the next part of it? Or are you, is your head always in the same, the same moment? Um, the how, old right brain, left brain. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, you know, do you need to take have distance from from something in order to be able to add to it, or yeah. are you able to kind of picture it all in your head? I think I work pretty much just from the inside out. I mean, just what, whatever, however it starts to. Every piece, I think, follows its own process, which is one of the great. I don't try to. I never try to impose a process. That's another objection that I have to a lot of workshops that seem to think that there is a sort of canonical way. Well, you know, I always think, well, as soon as there's a set of rules, the whole idea is to break them as quickly as possible. But certainly to, to make up the rules depending on the nature of the piece. So everything happens uh, just to be attentive to the process. So it's, it's pretty organic. Very organic. For each piece. Very organic. And, okay, thanks. You know, when I'm working in bigger pieces with, like, all those actors that were in American Heavy, that was fabulous because sometimes I work, I have some great actors right near me, which is a blessing because sometimes after the piece is all really ready to be mastered and some line will not be hitting my ear right or there, there'll be something wrong and I'll get them back and we'll just improvise through and then very often they'll do something that I had not, never thought of using that will just become the, the, the best thing in the piece. So, you know, being available to accident and, uh, you know, never thinking that you've got it right because you never know. If you open it up again, something's going to happen that could be take it to a whole other level. I'm getting signals, though, that we should. But I do want to do, do one, one final cartoon for you. So if we can bring the, uh, the lights down again. This one is, um, <clears throat> this is actually my favorite, so I, that's why I have to, have to do it. This uh, glossolalia. Glossolalia, I've always been fascinated by glossolalia, which is, of course, speaking in tongues. And what fascinates me is that it combines divine inspiration with utter nonsense. And so it, it leads to questions, well, what is the language of God? Um, but this combination of divine inter intervention and, and utter no nonsense also seems to me has, has become my working definition when people ask me, what is radio art? You know, radio art combines this sort of divine with this very human, you know, stumbling, erratic, essentially nonsensic, non the nonsensical nature of our, of my, of our lives. Um, so I wanted to do something that dealt with glossolalia. And this piece is, in, this cartoon is in fact called Everything I Know About Glossolalia. Because I, I also love the word. I mean, it's this hard Teutonic g, gloss, and then it sort of, it, it, then it just dissolves into S's and L's, very, you know. So I was very curious to see what kind of anagrams I could get out of the word glossolalia. So I treated it as an anagram mine, and I was, I mean, it was a true gold mine. And then I arranged 
all my anagrams into a kind of libretto liturgy. So this one is everything I know. Hold on just a sec so I can, because I need a properly lubricated, mm, everything I know about glossolalia. Lula sags oil, logos alisol, sail, los logo, laila lasku, ali, las logos, las oil gold, salsa lugil, who sails all, glossolalia. Log on oasis, all silos ago. Ali, Oslo, slag, sail, lags, loo. Lola, sis, Olga, soils, all aglow. Laos, lags, oil, sola, sag, soil. Glossolalia. Log, sail, sola, Lila has no gas, sail, louse, log, all sisal, goo. Olga, sal, sila, sola, also kill, all ass, igloo, also lags, oil, glossolalia. Everything I know.